You're listening to Season 7 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. Hello, and welcome to Season 7 of Mobile Suit Breakdown. As always, we are your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan, and returning to a movie I've seen many times before. And I'm Nina, new to F91, and frankly pretty confounded. But you have to wait a couple of weeks to find out why. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 602 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Doogie, Guang N, Russell H, This Feeling, Is It Amaro? No, It's Triple Cheese. <laughs> I tried not to laugh, Tom ruined it. Angel J, Kiyoung JJ, Jim, Dave H, Mike C, Jordan B, Eric E, Chris W, Lisbon Mapping, Josh McD, William H, Victoria W, Andrew LB, Data Error, Richard S, Brianna D, B, and Dank. You keep us Genki. And if you expected to be thanked today and haven't, I will get to you next week or the one after. We had such a backlog of new patrons to thank that I've split up the list. Special thanks also go out to Kevin, Ron, Susan, Michael, and Irene for getting us books from our wish list and gift cards for various supplies, plus a mysterious benefactor whose gift came with strings. Quote, one day when my helicopter lands on your building and I invite you guys as experts to my Gundam theme park, you aren't allowed to say no, a stipulation we are happy to agree to. This is your periodic reminder that Mobile Suit Breakdown is entirely listener-supported. We don't have ads or sponsors. Do your part to keep us independent and ad-free, and to help us cover Gundam of the 90s and beyond by becoming a subscriber today. Subscribers get early access to episodes, a members-only chat room, exclusive bonus content, and more. Check out all the subscriber benefits and sign up today at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. The main subject of this season is the 1991 animated movie Mobile Suit Gundam Formula 91, or F91 for short. As usual, we're going to watch the movie, recap it for you, and then dig in to discuss our impressions of the film's narrative, its characters, its themes, animation, music. We're going to approach it from as many angles as we can, and our analysis will be supplemented by deeper dives into the history and mythology referenced in the movie, the context in which it was created, the big personalities and behind-the-scenes drama that helped to shape it, and whatever else catches our curiosity. But before we can start on F91, or the SD Gundam short film that preceded it in theaters, we need to talk about the first episode of Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory. But wait, I hear you cry. What about watching everything in release order? Didn't Stardust Memory come out after F91? To which I would say, well yes, 
but more accurately, no. Let's start with a rough timeline. Gundam Double Zeta ended in the spring of 1987. By that point, many of its lead creatives like chief director Tomino Yoshiyuki, mecha designer Izubuchi Yutaka, and character designer Kitazume Hiroyuki had already begun working on the movie Shars Counterattack, which debuted in theaters the following March, 1988. After Shars Counterattack, Two separate teams within Sunrise began working on direct-to-video projects that would take the Gundam franchise in new directions, the six-episode tragedy War in the Pocket, aimed at older fans, and the swarm of SD comedies aimed at younger children. Both were ready for release starting in spring 1989, and they sold well enough to convince Gundam anime studio Sunrise and its most important sponsor, the toy maker Bandai, to make more like them. But these were satellite projects. They orbited around the primary mass of the original Gundam storyline, the one that was expressed in those three television anime, First Gundam, Zeta Gundam, and Gundam Double Zeta, as well as the movie Shars Counterattack, all of which were created under the oversight of Chief Director Tomino. By now, Tomino had become synonymous with the Gundam franchise. There were folks within Sunrise who felt that his creative talents were wasted cranking out Gundam sequel after Gundam sequel. Others avoided working on Gundam because the chief director had gotten himself a reputation for being a high-handed and impossible-to-please micromanager. But all the same, the powers that be agreed that you really couldn't make a proper Gundam project without having Tomino running it. So, by December of 1988, Tomino was working on a proposal for some kind of new Gundam story. And even at this point, the emphasis really falls on the word new. Char's counterattack had ended the original Gundam storyline, and it was time for a break with the past. The new work would be set in a new era, and every effort would be taken to free it from the baggage of the previously published works. This looks to me a bit like what we would call market segmentation. Tomino's own Char's Counterattack and his novel Senko no Hasue, better known to us as Hathaway's Flash, both appealed to that original Gundam generation. The still-in-production-at-the-time War in the Pocket would also serve that same adult fan demographic. But a decade of tangled continuity and nostalgia was not attracting droves of new fans, especially not fans belonging to the lucrative model-kit-buying middle and high school demographics. Although not yet released at this point, SD Gundam would capture that younger audience, but everyone kind of agreed that it wasn't real proper Gundam, and in time SD's runaway success would cause its own problems. But that is a story for another episode. In February of 1989, Tomino met with veteran producer Yamaura Eiji to discuss this nascent Gundam project, which was codenamed Heisei Gundam, for reasons that I will explain in a moment. Yamaura and Tomino went way back. Yamaura had been one of the founders of Sunrise, and then one of the original planners of First Gundam. He had produced the movie versions of the show, and had worked together with Tomino on other projects in the intervening years. Yamaura would be the executive producer for Heisei Gundam, but back in 1987 he had stepped up to replace Ito Masanori as president of Sunrise. Presumably then, he must have been splitting his attention between the new project 
and his day-to-day duties running the company. So the producer who would actually be in the trenches, so to speak, would be the former president, Ito Masanori. Those are some influential names to attach to the project, and a clear signal of just how important Heisei Gundam was for Sunrise's plans. That name, Heisei Gundam, reflected their desire to establish a new era for Gundam. Japan uses the Gregorian calendar, but it also has its own parallel dating system based on named eras. Since 1868, these eras have aligned with the reigns of the emperors. Thus, the death of the emperor Hirohito on January 7, 1989, meant the end of the old Showa era. His son Akihito succeeded to the chrysanthemum throne, and on January 8, 1989, the government of Japan officially announced the beginning of the new era, Heisei. The start of the new era offered the perfect opportunity for rebirth. After ten years building upon the foundation laid down in First Gundam, it was time to create a new foundational story for this new era. Something strong enough that it could support the franchise for at least another decade. Heisei Gundam, F-91, was meant to be that foundation. At that point, they didn't know whether the project would turn into a TV show or another movie, but they did have a skeleton of a plan and a tentative slot in the TV schedule if they decided to go that route. April 1990, just over a year away. Yamaura and Ito spent the next several months assembling their team, and by September 1989, they had managed to recruit mecha designer Okawara Kunio and character designer Yasuhiko Yoshikazu. These two, together with chief director Tomino, were thought to be the driving creative forces behind First Gundam's runaway success. Getting all three of them together again was no small feat, and another clear sign that Sunrise was really committed to this new Heisei Gundam thing. Magazines covering the anime industry took notice, and excitement started to build. But almost immediately, the project began to run into trouble. Indecision at the top, friction among the major creators, shifting expectations, all of which proved to be harbingers of bigger problems still to come. There's a great deal to say about the behind-the-scenes struggles for this movie, so much so that I'm going to need to revisit it in future episodes. For now, let's stick to this timeline. In October of 1989, they realized that an April debut the following year was impossible. Planning for the new project just wasn't far enough along. So, they would have to give up the TV spot, and make a movie instead. That bought them some time, but it would have major consequences. Pushing Heisei Gundam back to March 1991 had created gaps in the Gunpla and anime release schedules that needed to be filled. Bandai wanted a Gundam they could make a model kit of and sell in 1990, but the only ready design was the one that Okawara had created for Heisei Gundam. But no matter, they took that design, they renamed it the F-90 Gundam, and repurposed it. It became the lead machine in a prequel manga published through Bandai's Cyber Comics magazine. Okawara, though, would have to come up with a new Gundam design to carry the movie, now called Formula 91 or F-91, the number having been chosen to correspond to its new planned release year, 1991. 
On the Sunrise side, it seems likely that this is around when Sunrise decided to start working on a second parallel Gundam project, the 13-episode direct-to-video 0083 Stardust Memory. I haven't been able to pin down the exact dates for this, but we know that they were approached by representatives of Bandai's home video division, who were impressed by War in the Pocket's sales numbers and wanted to do another one. The sales reportedly improved as that miniseries progressed, and they peaked with episode 4 when the Gundam made its first appearance. So we can assume that the decision to make another direct-to-video series probably happened after the final episode of War in the Pocket went on sale in August of 1989. The original plan for Stardust Memory would have seen them produce six episodes before F91's theatrical debut, filling in the gap created by the movie's delay. Then they would pick up again after the movie came out to finish the series. That plan didn't actually work out, but that does seem to have been their intention. While Stardust Memory producer Ueda Masuo was assembling his team, Tomino was struggling with his. Everything was behind schedule on F91, especially the script. With the script still in flux, the designers didn't know who or what they were designing. With no script, and with the designs not yet finished, there were no storyboards. And with no storyboards, there was nothing to animate. I'll go into all of this in more detail in a future episode, but for now, suffice it to say that the script wouldn't be finished until June of 1990. Design work continued at least until August, and the storyboards weren't finalized until September. By this point, the F91 and 0083 productions seem to have been running almost in parallel, because dated design documents for 0083 suggest that mecha and character designs for the first episode were also finished between July and September 1990. With planning finally done at the beginning of autumn 1990 and deadlines fast approaching, we can assume that both teams spent the whole autumn and the beginning of the winter working feverishly. Outside of the studio, the marketing machine for F91 was running in high gear, and people were getting hyped up. Bondi had model kits on the shelves, and the publisher Kodansha started printing a special Gundam-exclusive magazine in order to promote the upcoming movie. Then, on December 16, 1990, exactly three months before the movie's theatrical debut, they started advanced ticket sales. For 2,000 yen, you could get yourself a ticket to see the hot new Gundam movie, absolutely guaranteed to blow your mind and kick off an exciting new chapter for the biggest name in mecha anime. But, just in case that wasn't enough, Bandai and Sunrise threw in a little bonus, just as a sweetener. Along with your ticket to see F91, you also got a VHS tape with an exclusive preview version of the first episode of this other Gundam thing, Stardust Memory. Imagine a dedicated Gundam fan sitting in a darkened theater on opening night, waiting for F91 to start. They've already seen Stardust Memory Episode 1. It must have shaped their expectations. They couldn't help but compare the two productions. Maybe afterwards they met up with other hardcore fans and argued their relative merits long into the night. They must have been wondering which one really represented the future of the franchise. Here at MSB, we want to understand that perspective, 
And that means we need to cover that first preview episode before we can cover the movie. Unfortunately, the preview was only released on VHS, and at the moment we don't have the capacity to watch it. So we're just going to have to make do with the final production version. If you're watching along at home, the only truly significant difference that I'm aware of is that the final production version inserted an additional scene at the very beginning. So we're going to be starting with the title card, which is at the 1 minute and 50 second mark. I've also heard that while the cast and the script are identical, the preview version does feature different readings of many of the lines. Things are performed differently and the timing is a little different. Also, because we are covering a pre-release preview, you should think of our coverage here as a preview for the upcoming MSB Season 8. We'll be revisiting this first episode and giving it the full MSB treatment when the appropriate time comes. For now, though, it's time for some Stardust Precognition. Take us away, transition music. It has been three years since the end of the One Year War. In desert ruins, a squad of Federation test pilots put a new, upgraded variant of the Jim mobile suit through its paces, in practice battle against three Zaku, repainted in Federation khaki. Zaku pilots Cole, Keith, and Kirks struggle to keep up with 2nd Lieutenant Allen in the new Jim-powered, and their commanding officer, Lieutenant South Burning, watches from a nearby monitoring station. Meanwhile, the new Federation carrier Albion, under command of Captain Synapse, passes over the vast underwater crater where the city of Sydney once stood, before Zeon's Operation British annihilated it. They are carrying special cargo, two new Gundam-type mobile suits developed by arms manufacturer Anaheim Electronics, and the young engineer who designed them, Nina Purpleton. Soldiers, still loyal to Xeon, hide among the sun-baked rock formations nearby, watching the Albion's approach. They have been expecting it, and its arrival is a trigger. Their leader, the silver-haired Commander Gato, signals the start of something called Operation Stardust. The Albion's arrival was also preceded by rumors about its cargo, and Torrington Base, the normally quiet Federation facility just north of Sydney Crater, hums with excitement as the shining descendant of the fabled White Base sets down in a cloud of dust. The test pilots are eager to put the new mobile suits through their paces, and Cole, the most mobile suit mad of them all, wants the first glimpse. With his friend Keith as a somewhat unwilling accomplice, he slips into the Albion's hangar. Both young men are in awe of the agile-looking Unit 1 and the hulking Unit 2, but Keith is more interested in the engineer. Nina arrives to shoo them away. Keith's flirting is more irritating than ingratiating, but it does give Cole cover to examine the mobile suits more closely, until Nina's mechanic friend, Maura, arrives. Most of the Albion's crew are spacenoids, and the locals are happy to humor their fascination with Earth phenomena, including recommending the best sites to watch the sunset. Orville, one of the Anaheim technicians who came with the Gundams, leaves the base under that pretense. As soon as he is out of sight, he makes radio contact with the nearby Xeon remnants. While Orville rendezvous with his co-conspirators, 
Captain Synapse and Torrington Base's commanding general unlock the facility's cache of nuclear weapons. The Unit 2 Gundam was designed to carry a nuclear warhead, and Synapse has orders from High Command to test this capability. Out in the desert, Gato, now disguised in a Federation uniform, gives a few last orders to his men before slipping into Torrington Base, hidden under a blanket in the back of Orville's borrowed jeep. Though the plan depends on it, he is disgusted by the lax security. He arrives at the Albion's hangar just after Nina and Mara have finished loading the nuclear warhead into Unit 2's bazooka. Cole and Keith are there too. Cole can't seem to keep himself away. They're on their way out when Gato slips past them and, before anyone can stop him, into the cockpit of the unguarded Unit 2. First to react is Cole, jumping into the Unit 1's cockpit while Gato is busy cutting his way out of the Albion's hangar. Before anyone else can move to stop him, the air raid sirens blare. Gato's men have unleashed a barrage of cluster bombs that rain fire and chaos on the whole base. Behind them come the mobile suits. The Federation soldiers are shocked by the reappearance of this defeated enemy and are slow to react. Only a handful of their mobile suits are ready for real combat, and the test pilot Kirks is cut down in short order by an enemy, Dom Tropen. Gato orders his troops to withdraw. The chaos they've already inflicted is distraction enough, but his own escape is blocked by Cole in the Unit 1 Gundam. The Federation test pilot squares off against his mysterious foe, Beam Saber Drawn. It is December 1990. It has been more than a year since any Gundam stuff came out. At least, any proper Gundam stuff. If you are a, let's say, adult Gundam fan, you grew up with First Gundam, Zeta, Double Zeta, you saw Shars Counterattack, and then you watched that fascinating little direct-to-video miniseries, War in the Pocket. But since then, since August 1989, when the last episode of War in the Pocket came out, it has been nothing but SD Gundam. And now, you have in your hands the first episode of this new thing. You put it into your VCR, brand new, high-tech, and it starts to play. The most important question for any kind of preview content like this is, does it make you want to watch the full thing? Does it make you feel excited for the release of the show or the videotape or whatever? And in my case, the answer is a resounding yes. <laughs> I am excited to watch this series now. Good, good. It did its job. And this is kind of doing double duty because it has to make you excited both for the rest of this OVA series, 0083, and it's being sold along with a ticket to the premiere of F91. So it should also be sort of priming people for that movie, creating a, a sense of anticipation for more Gundam. In a way, it's setting expectations for F91, even though the projects are not directly connected. It's astute of you to point out the role that this has in getting people hyped up for the real thing, because this was being sold at just rock-bottom prices. Even today, home video in Japan is pretty expensive. Back then, it was very expensive. But you could get one of these preview tapes, plus that ticket, for just 2,000 yen, 
which is not wow. very much money. Yeah, that's way less than you would pay for a single episode of War in the Pocket, for instance. So this is kind of neither here nor there in terms of the episode, but were they concerned that they hadn't done enough to promote the movie? I don't think that's the case. The marketing blitz for the movie was extensive. Okay. They had a dedicated magazine. They had Gunpla on the shelves already, both for the movie and for the prequel manga that was coming out. Like, they were doing a full-on blitz for the movie. I think huh. they might have been concerned that there wasn't enough marketing behind this series, behind mm. Stardust Memory. So that premiere ticket was to get people to watch this first episode, not the other way around. I think it was, yeah. Okay. I think the idea is that everybody is really hyped up to watch the new movie. Here's this other, like, smaller side production, mostly intended for the hardcore adult fan base. Let's, like, throw a copy of the first episode in free, basically, with that movie ticket, and maybe people will get interested. Uh, probably reflects their experience with War in the Pocket, which mm -hmm. I understand that sales for that series got better as it went along. So you can understand the strategy of give the first episode away for free and then charge them for the next 12. And we all know that the truly dedicated fan is not going to be satisfied with just the preview episode. After they've bought the preview episode, they have to buy the real first episode too, right? Naturally. Otherwise, the collection is not complete. My notes about this episode basically break down into animation, visual design, characterization elements, and then the narrative and storytelling elements. And what you mentioned about hardcore fans made me realize something. So many of my notes have to do with my impressions of this episode in comparison to previous Gundam and various things that feel familiar, that mm -hmm, feel as mm -hmm. though they are in continuity with previous Gundam, and which things feel different. Okay. And then narratively, we know we're in UC 83, which is a time period that hasn't been covered yet by shows. If you're following along at home, it's just about the midpoint between First Gundam and Zeta. And that feels like a very hardcore fan tendency to me to want to go back into the timeline and fill in the, the pieces of the timeline where we don't have information. Mm -hmm. To want to kind of backfill the story, which we did a little bit in War in the Pocket and presumably will happen some <laughs> more in this series when we get to it. I know it's certainly something that happens with a lot of book series, right? That you have an original series, and then as a fan base grows, as you have a group of people who become really invested in this world and its characters, they want to know about the origins, they want to know the history, they want to know more about the world, and in addition to whatever continuing series you have, you can always go back and do prequel series. You can fill in and flesh out things that get hinted at in the original. And as I sort of talked about in the opening to all of this, when a franchise gets big enough and old enough, it naturally segments. And the kinds of projects that you need to make to bring in new fans are very different from the kinds of projects you need to make in order to satisfy existing fans. Back when we were covering War in the Pocket, I talked about the two different explanations for how the colony drop happened during the One Year War, and how at the time of War in the Pocket, neither one was really official. 
83 here in the first episode takes a decisive side. It puts it on screen and makes it a major part of the episode. I pointed that out in my notes because it's some of the only real exposition we Mm -hmm. get. We're back to the kind of storytelling that is not going to spend a lot of time explaining things to us. They plop us into the world and figure we will understand as we go. Absolutely. There's an enormous amount of information that's being conveyed just by implication, sort of osmosis. And the this whole first episode has a tremendously strong sense of place. The location is so important to what happens, even though it's literally background. But going back to that question of sort of picking a canon explanation, the one they've gone with is one that derives from like side material source books that were published around when First Gundam came out. This is like the hardcore fan version that they have chosen to take and run with. And I think that says a lot about the kind of production this is going to be. We're also at a point where the first episode of a Gundam series kind of has a formula to it. There's always a new prototype Gundam. There's always some uh, very young guy who's in the right place at the right time. (laughs) Yeah, the wrong person gets into the Gundam. Uh, The Gundam may be stolen or may simply be borrowed for the purposes of of defending against an attack. Here we get both of those because there are two Gundams, so we can do both. As I understand it, the War in the Pocket episodes that had the Gundam show up in them did sell significantly better than ones that didn't have the Gundam in it. Ha. So here, right from the get-go, they've corrected that issue. They have not just one, but two Gundams, and they don't just sit there. They actually get up and move around by the end of the episode. So really, the fans are being serviced. Phrasing. (laughs) I love the Unit 2's face. Mm. I wanted to ask you about that. When you first saw it before anything else had happened with it, did the face look villainous to you? No, but I'm not certain if that's because I already knew it was a Gundam. And so once they tell you a suit is a Gundam, your assumption is, ah, this is a protagonist side mobile suit. This is a quote unquote good guys mobile (laughs) suit as much as we ever have good guys. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of primed my reaction. Interesting. Okay. Well, I think it did. I don't know. The... (laughs) On my second watch through, I realized what the face reminds me of is kabuki hair and makeup. That's so much more refined than what it reminded me of. (laughs) What does it remind you of? Kind of reminds me of the Night Gundam a little bit. Oh, just some different Gundam? Okay. Yes. All Gundams (laughs) remind me of other Gundams. That's not helpful for me. I close my eyes and all I see is Gundam. Which Gundam do I look like? (laughs) When you look at me, (laughs) what Gundam do you see? That would be a spoiler. So I ask this because it does get stolen by the villain. And from my perspective, looking at it, I think it just looks inherently villainous. It's a villain Gundam. But I can't remember what I thought the first time I looked at it, the first time I laid eyes on it before I knew what would happen to it. For all that I did not have that same reaction, for me to say that it looks like kabuki makeup is for me to say it looks aggressive. The classic sort of warrior makeup in Kabuki looks very almost snarling. It looks strongly aggressive and serious. It is not a friendly looking face. Since we're talking about design, I might start talking about some of those similarities and differences that I picked up on. Ignoring the timeline for a moment, because I know the timeline is all wrong for this, 
but the opening shot in this desert, which it's implied that it used to be a city, took me back to the desert in CCA that Mirai mm. and Shaman are in. Mm-hmm. It's very visually similar. And CCA does end with shots of that desert. It's included in the ending montage. And then this opens with a very similar kind of desert. There's this sense of continuity between those two worlds, even though the timing is all off. I know they're also in different parts of the world, but... The main part be because the art director, the person in charge of the background art for 0083, was himself a background artist on Char's counterattack. Well, there you go. There were also moments, albeit brief, where certain characters' faces looked to me like the faces of characters from previous Gundam series. Huh. Uh, in a couple of shots, Gato's face, I thought, looked a lot like CCA-era Char. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely got the same haircut. Gato just wears his longer, but that whole, like, slicked back thing. But I even mean sort of the line work of the face itself and mm-hmm. the expressions. Mm-hmm. And then Orville, in several shots, looks a lot like Kai. Oh. Like adult Kai, grown-up <laughs> Kai. Mm. Obviously, we have our... New white base, our Pegasus-class ship. The improved version of the white base. It's called the Albion. Albion actually is an interesting name for it. Albion is the sort of mythic name for the island of Britain, but it's also derived from the Latin word for white. So we get that connection back to the white base via that etymological route, but also it feels like there's a connection between calling it the Albion and all of this sort of happening in the literal shadow of Operation British. It's while they're on the Albion that they're talking about Operation British, for example. The way the Dom moves during the attack, that gliding side-to-side motion, is straight out of First Gundam. As we would expect. And this is a very small thing, but when they're in the uh, special facility that holds all of the nukes, and the general at the base is going through the retina scanner, hand scanner, code (laughs) entry. On the screen during the retinal scan, they use some of the same fonts that they've used (laughs) previously uh, for various technology screens and, and things like that. The official Earth Federation font. Or something, yeah. Federation Uh, Federal Forces font. (laughs) There's a lot of visual continuity back to War in the Pocket specifically, which makes sense. It had only just come out, and they did a ton of really good visual development work for the Federal Forces that would it would be a shame to just throw it out. So the uniforms are, I think, more similar to 0080 than to any other project from around that time. The rifles that they carry, we don't see them very often, but we do occasionally see Federation-like infantry rifles, and they're identical to the ones that were in 0080. Um, at one point, there we see some like orange crates in the background that have come down with Nina for the Gundam project, and uh, they've got like you know one and two written on them. Those orange crates are straight out of War in the Pocket and the Alex project. One of the other things that felt extremely Gundam to me was lots of little moments of characterization in the background, either in the way people 
are designed or in the way that they actually behave. Mm. The captain of the Albion, for instance, reading his book while on deck, and he's still listening to everybody. We know he's still paying attention to what's going on around him, but knows in a book, looks totally occupied in that. An interesting detail they've added is that the Albion has got two captains on it. It's got this Passerov guy who is actually on the bridge at the beginning of that scene, uh, and he's referred to as captain, that's his rank. He then refers to the other guy, um, which is written as Synapus, but I think it's supposed to be Synapse. He refers to Synapse as captain, but he says Concho, which is like not the rank captain, but the position of captain of a warship. So his rank is probably something different, but he's temporarily the captain of this warship. English does this very confusing thing where we say captain, it means like four different things. You can be an army captain, you can be a navy captain, you can be the commander of a vessel, or you can be the commander of a warship. Japanese doesn't have that problem. Japanese distinguishes these different roles very clearly. So if you are the commanding officer of a warship, then you are kancho regardless of your actual rank. Got it. The group of test pilots are all quite visually distinct, not just in having different heights, different hair colors, different skin colors, but even that they wear their uniforms differently, that they eat food in the mess hall differently, <laughs> that they have different postures and mannerisms. The general of the base itself has a photo on his desk of his family, and they also, either one or both of the other people in the photo, appear to be wearing Federation uniforms. Both of them, both the daughter and the son. Okay, I thought it was maybe a wife and son, but okay. I, I think given the ages, they're both uh, his kids. I can't tell ages at all from those shots. I just got relative heights. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he does. He has this family photo sitting on his desk, and it's a Federation Forces family. Yep. We're doing FFF everything today. Nina is in what we might think of, and that's going to be really <laughs> tricky for me. <laughs> We're when all going to have fun with that one. Saying my own name all the time because that almost never happens. Just like a Pokemon. She's in what I think of as office attire, but she wears sleeve garters. It's so old school. It's very old school. But they're and, back uh, in space. They might actually be useful in space I, to keep yeah. the billowing sleeves from getting in your way. For those of you who aren't familiar, a sleeve garter is a little strap you wear around your arm that holds your sleeves higher up without you having to sort of roll the cuffs. And people would wear them so that the cuffs of their sleeves wouldn't get dragged through wet ink while they were writing. Like mostly it was to protect your sleeves from working. And sometimes people would also actually just wear like a cloth cover <laughs> that looks a bit like an arm warmer over their sleeves to protect them while they were working. I was going to say, <laughs> before I was so rudely interrupted, that to me, the fact that she wears sleeve garters says she's not the sort of engineer who's only doing diagrams and calculations and math in an office or a lab. She is in there working with her hands on this machinery. Mm. And so on occasion, it needs her sleeves out of the way. Anina is not the only person whose character is conveyed to us principally in how they dress. Because if you look at the scenes of Gato with the other Zeon soldiers, the distinction between them is stark. 
all of those Xeon Remnants soldiers, the other pilots that he's hanging out with, their uniforms are battered. They're kind of schlubby. They've undone some of the buttons. Um, and all of them look kind of dirty and older. Frankly, when you compare them to sort of the young shonen hero types of the Federation side, they all look kind of ugly. Whereas Gato himself is like a beautiful bishonen. His <laughs> clothing is always immaculate. And he's so distressed that they've given him a uniform for the wrong rank. For Gato, his clothes, his uniform, his presentation, his rank, his status, all of these things are like essential parts of his personality. It's the same sentiments that make him look at the lax security of this Federation base and feel almost anger or shame that these are the people we lost to. Right. These lazy, schlubby people <laughs> are the ones we lost to. How can this be possible? I love that. He's like, ugh, these are the people we're fighting. And it's like, they don't know that, though. Only you know that you're fighting them. I think, and this connects both to the characterization and the sense of place, but there is a distinction between the space noids and the people from Earth in how they dress. The Earth noids are more relaxed, more casual. They are adapted to the environment, whereas the space noids, and this is Nina and Gato, are very like pristine and buttoned up, literally. You look at the difference between Nina and Mora, for instance, and how they dress, how they look, or between Gato and the short-sleeved, relaxed fatigues of the Federation Forces people. But then Gato's pilots, who have been stuck on Earth all of this time, have gone native a little bit. They've taken on an earthiness. I don't know. I don't think that has anything to do with Earthnoids v. Spacenoids. I think in each of those cases, it has to do with, like, relative social position and position in their respective sort of workplaces. I'm going to talk about Nina at the end because there's sort of a more complex thing maybe going on that I want to ask you about. But Mara is a mechanic. <laughs> she is wearing a coverall. You know, that's like the standard wear for what they do. Gato has that very Xeon aristocratic thing going on where it's like, oh, well, if I want to command loyalty and respect for my men, I have to hold myself to a higher standard. I have to look the part. I have to act the part. His men are Xeon remnants who have been living in the wilderness for three years with n probably very little in the way of supplies or support. Of course they look grubby. <laughs> Whereas on the base, the young guys look casual because they probably weren't even in the war. They're too young. They either joined right as it was ending or they joined after it was over. They probably don't ever think they're going to see active combat. They just think it's super cool flying, you know, cutting edge mobile suits. They look and feel casual because they are. None of this is real for them until that attack happens. To push back just a little bit, there is some more of that sense of going native, I guess, in the way the Zaku that the Federation forces are using are presented and in the way that that Xeon pilot responds to them. And he's like, I hate to see it like this. I hate to see what they've done to it, what that Zaku has become. You also mentioned Nina. 
What I'm wondering from this first episode is whether more than previous women in Gundam shows in similar positions, we're going to see her dealing very actively with a certain amount of discrimination as a woman in the workplace. For a lot of women, the way they dress at work is a kind of armor Mm -hmm. to make people take you seriously. Mm -hmm. And so you talked about that precision, that neatness. That could very much be a part of responding to a kind of hostile workplace. Certainly we see her throughout the whole episode being kind of prickly and defensive, both in situations where it's called for and in situations where maybe it's not. But in the way that we would expect somebody who is accustomed to working in a very hostile, very sexist environment to respond. Who's used to a kind of casual disrespect from the people around them. Mm -hmm. And who is kind of sharp elbowed about it, who is not afraid to stand up to people and snipe at them and be kind of nasty in response to people being nasty to her. And there are hints of the fact that she's not like this all the time, right? She is openly excited about the ocean, about Mm -hmm. a sunset. And if Keith hadn't insisted on, like, trying to make a date out of it and being so handsy, she probably would have happily taken him up on, like, oh, I know a really good place to watch sunsets from, I'll show you, Mm -hmm. if he hadn't come on so strong. Yeah, that's sort of the moment in the episode where her attitude changes, because she is like very excited about the ocean. She's very sort of warm and friendly with Captain, I'm going to say Synapse. I'm going to go with that. Um, And it is during that conversation initially with Ko and Keith when that all slips away and she's like, oh, it's just more of these like horny Gundam mad young men. Who want to explain the machine I designed to me, who want to mansplain Mm -hmm. this thing that is my project Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I've worked on for years. To me. And then when they have dinner with the other test pilots, it very quickly becomes apparent that these guys are like just interested in the Gundam. They just want to pilot it. I kind of wondered about that because they I think that scene elides some time. The women show up with full trays. Mm-hmm. He offers for them to join and sit down and then cut to everyone's trays are empty. They're done eating. They're having the after dinner coffee. Yeah. So they may well have had normal conversation and the men waited to bring up. So what kind of pilot are you looking <laughs> for for these machines until after the women had done eating? Right. But the way in which it's cut implies that that was... Uh, a calculated decision rather than a friendly one. Yes. Worth noting, while we're talking about Nina and sexism in the workplace, the director for this episode was Kase Mitsuko. All right. One of very few women to direct an episode of Gundam at this point, possibly the first one. In terms of Keith and Cole, I think Cole is just like kooky yomenai. He's sort of oblivious and doesn't really think about or notice other people's feelings. Kooky yomenai means unable to read the air. Unable to like read the room, read the atmosphere. And so I firmly believe he would act this way with anybody. He's not being specifically disrespectful to her because she's a woman. He would be this kind of disrespectful to anyone. (laughs) Just like climbing all over her machine and peppering her with questions and... He feels like a very specific kind of audience insert. He's just Gundam mad. And kind of entitled unless somebody stops him. You know, if one of his commanding officers ordered him to not do this, I think he would stop. But 
he's more of a beg forgiveness than ask permission kind of fellow. And here we are. I did wonder, I sort of got the impression that while Keith would probably have flirted with her regardless, his persistence was almost to give cover for Cole so Cole could keep looking at the Gundam. Uh-huh. Because there's that moment where she's about to stride over to Cole and tell him off, and Keith sort of jumps in her way. I wondered whether that's him being pushy or whether that's him trying to help his friend. He does kind of a similar thing later when they're leaving. This is right before Gato arrives to steal Unit 2. But they're leaving, and Ko is like, no, I want to I wanna look at the Gundams some more. And Keith is like, no, my heart is so broken. You have to go and take me to the bars was Keith playing it up to, like, get Cole out of there before Cole, like... Gets them both in trouble. (laughs) Exactly. You know, certain friends need to be managed. And it's very clear in that first conversation we see between the two of them in the Jeep on the way to the Albion that Cole gets them into these kind of scrapes all the time. And Keith enjoys it, but he also knows, like, oh, you're going to get us into scrapes. (laughs) (laughs) So he may be very used to managing Cole in this way. This is good character work. They've done an astonishingly good job of setting up all of these characters in just this first episode. I also wondered, when Nina and Mora realize all of a sudden that they have to go for the load-in for that missile, and they get up kind of abruptly, Nina starts to say something about how people who have only piloted really old mobile suits are probably not going to be ideal pilots for these new Gundams. And she cuts herself off. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, were you about to talk about new types? Uh-huh. I also <laughs> wondered that. My company is really looking for someone who can push this suit to its limits. Something like uh, an Esper. Someone who has only done old type piloting <laughs> may not be a great fit. Though that pause and the process of wondering like, oh, what was she about to say there? makes me wonder, and I don't think Nina would be privy to this, but it makes me wonder if maybe Anaheim kind of wanted one of them to get stolen. If Anaheim kind of wanted to see two Gundams go against each other, maybe not the whole company, but like somebody inside of it. Maybe Orville wasn't uh, entirely operating on his own. Here's the thing. Anaheim has always played both sides against the middle. There have always been leaks. You know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, wink, Mm -hmm, wink. mm -hmm. And hey, this is an era when federal military spending is probably plummeting. They've got no enemies to fight. So if you were a weapons contractor in 0083, it might be in your interest for there to be some kind of an incident which required a military response. One more aspect that felt familiar in many ways was the mobile suit gore, Mm. which we only get a bit of there in that attack at the very end of the episode, but the Dom's beam saber going through that other mobile suit. Right through the cockpit. And in classic Gundam fashion, we do get that horror, that terror that Kirks feels right before he gets killed. It behooves us to mention that Kirks is one of the only brown-skinned people in this episode and the first one to die, as is tradition. Less traditional, we end on a cliffhanger, which is pretty rare for Gundam series. Not a, a play that they have made 
in most of the earlier ones. We might see more of that going forward. I think it is a thing that became more popular, especially in the 2000s in American television. I don't know as much about Japanese TV, uh, but we'll probably see it happening more as we continue. Even more so than with a TV episode, the cliffhanger seems like ideal for this kind of direct-to-video release. Absolutely. You gotta buy the next episode if you want to see what happens. But also, I wonder at what point they knew that this was going to be released as a preview like this. Because if they knew early enough, they could have planned this whole episode out to be a teaser. Regardless, I'm teased. If I had just seen this in December of 1990, I would be very excited to go and watch F91. A quick pre-outro note. In case you missed it, Tom and I attempted a translation of SD Gundam Scramble to aid in our analysis of the short. We did not create a subtitle file or anything like that, but the text of our translation attempt is available on our Patreon page. It is a public post, so even if you aren't currently a patron, you can access it. There will be a direct link to that post in the show notes, which I need to mention because... Next time on episode 7.2, Dragon Ball G, we research and discuss SD Gundam Scramble and... Ilurophobia. Huh? Fear of cats. Oh. Same hat! A villain worse than the Satan Gundam. Translator's note. Grandpa, we're all out of heroes! But have you checked the fridge? Not senpai, not kohai, but a secret third thing. A load-bearing boss. Tom's unhealthy obsession with blimps. They are the transportation solution of the future. And... Furuya Toru in his most nuanced role yet. This is only the beginning. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is His Last Share of the Stars by Dr. Turtle. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. With Gundam's international popularity on the rise, there are now more opportunities to share your wrong Gundam opinions than ever before. So get out there and tell some stranger that, by the age of 30, you should have a group of friends who can talk about high-explosive munitions, family heirlooms, and whether or not justice will prevail, not politics or pop culture. now recording for the first time in quite some time. Don't remind me. <laughs> Do you feel out of practice? I feel a little rusty. Yes. <laughs>
careful about touching your beard while we're recording. I could absolutely hear. <laughs> I'm doing foley over here for um. Scritch, scritch. I don't. Scritch, what, scritch. what kind of? What, what is this foley for? Petting a dog. <laughs> <laughs> what unicorn class? Pegasus class. Sorry, Pegasus. I have a couple of things I wanted to jump in there with, but I didn't want to interrupt you rudely, so. <laughs> Were you about to mention new types? I did like the smile of delighted anticipation that Nina makes when Keith is still flirting with her and Mora is tapping him on the shoulder. Love Mora. Love an Amazon of a woman. <laughs> from the Amazon. As really? Okay. Well, from Jaburo, which is in the Amazon. Well, cool. I have to check periodically to make sure that the link forwarding is working because occasionally um, Squarespace will just decide that it shouldn't work anymore oh, no. and I have to update it. Okay, take two on this. Pew, 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 pew. High energy. Make it a podcast. Insert I need a hero audio clip here. No, the other one. And not the one from Shrek, either. Oh, right. There's a whole other reason. <laughs> Pardon me. If you're listening and you are the Harvey Dangar who followed me on Twitter, I want you to know that that display name makes me smile every time I think of it. A true day brightener. 